out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, and as you know, always playing the finest in indie pop. And we also love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Dave Haslam, who has just published a book, Searching for Love, Courtney Love in Liverpool, 1982. Dave, just to give you some background, former resident DJ at the legendary Hacienda, who's written plenty of books, five in fact, including Manchester, Liverpool and much, much more. Anyway, this is the interview and after a few minutes of um, casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the early years of Dave's musical adventure and this was his uh, response. Dave, it's over to you. started going over to Liverpool in 1981. 82. Uh, at that time, I was a student living in Manchester, um, studying English. And um, I, I made friends with a guy called Pete Wiley, who was in a band that, at that point called Wahid. And uh, Pete went on within a few years to have a couple of hit singles. Yeah. And uh, Pete, Pete was really my, my guide to the Liverpool music scene. Um, and he took me around the city, um, and and then in in, ni- in 1983 I started a fanzine in Manchester, and uh, I wrote about whatever I wanted to write about. It was a fanzine called Debris, and I wrote about music mainly, but also film, art, books, um, and quite random stuff as well. Reviews of uh, barbers and uh, fish and chip shops. It kind of reflected my life, basically. Yeah. And um, terrible diet, but good hair. Yeah. And exactly. And uh, uh, and then I went to, I, I, and I began writing more. I wrote uh, through that. I got a call from the enemy, and I did some freelance work for the enemy. Um, and also through that, and my interest in music, um, I began putting on bands with other people, and. Um, and I, I mean, I ended up putting on just stuff that nobody else was putting on. Um, but some of the bands ended up being relatively famous. So um, I kind of hold my hand up and say that I put on, for example, the first Primal Scream gig in Manchester and and uh, some of the first Sonic Youth, etc. Yeah. But and actually through putting on bands, I then b- began DJing because there were one or two occasions when the little crew and I who were putting on bands didn't have a support act. So the idea was that I would play music before the bands. You have to you have to kind of imagine these to be quite small venues. And then through that, I, I began to be, I, I was asked to DJ at the Hacienda, which at that point was a large, high-profile club in Manchester owned by Factory Records and New Order, um, but relatively empty. Uh, and it kind of obviously remained a big and high profile club owned by Factory Records and New Order, but slowly began to fill um, in the late 1980s. So by the end of the 1980s, I, I was DJing, writing in the enemy in the face. Um, and yeah, music was consuming my life, but alongside other things. And the, the interests that I put into the fanzine remained interests for me. So. Um, I, w- I was kind of heavily involved in, in not in at that point in writing books, but in writing, um, but in uh, reading books and getting involved in all sorts of projects. Yeah. Um, like you know, like a lot of people in their in their uh, mid mid twenties, you know, I felt like I had a space in my life to to dream and try things and. Um, Kind of unbeknownst to me, DJing obviously was going to become a bigger thing and it became a bigger thing for me. And so the things that I started out thinking, I'm dre- I really, this is my dream to write about bands and read a lot and, and, and DJ and put on bands ended up being actually my life and my career. 
Yeah. So 30 years on, it's kind of what I'm still doing. Yes, because in that time, because obviously Liverpool had that um, Eric's nightclub, which yeah. was, was huge, and every band you in, interview in Liverpool always mentioned Eric's and various, you know, the, all the scene that were people like Jane yeah. Casey and uh, Bill Drummond. So you had that, and also the Wild Swans, which was another sort of um, major yeah. band and player. But then, obviously... Across the way was the, the kind of the Manchester scene, but the musical landscape at that point was very sort of indie pop, wasn't it? It was that 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 we'd sort of come out of post punk, and there was that kind of world that was kind of Orange Juice and the June Brides, and then yeah, the Smiths. In, yeah, the, the first half of the eighties. I don't know if I would call it indie pop. I would, from my memory, really, I I, I don't think I felt like it was a genre that was could be described any better than being kind of a lot of John Peel bands. Um, uh, bands that he championed start, you know, uh, um, as you say, Liverpool and Manchester, you've got um, bands from the late 70s like Joy Division and the Buzzcocks, and you've got Killing Joe, um, Killing Joe, my brain's gone, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, Teardrop Explodes in Liverpool, as you say, Jane Casey, Wild Swans. Um, and the, I remember them as being, I remember feeling like these bands are weird. And I know it's that it sounds odd to be talking about bands that went on to sell millions of albums, but there was a sense it was a musical underground. Mainstream Manchester was not interested in uh, the bands that Factory Records were releasing. They weren't interested particularly in the Hacienda. We were a tiny little community. You know, more people would buy... Uh, records by dire straits than would buy the entire catalogue of factory in uh nineteen eighty two and three and four. So I and you know when the Smiths started in Manchester in eighty three, four, when they when they became a known band, you know, in, in eighty three, they were on top of the pops. They were kind of castigated for being so different, you know? And so I didn't to me, I didn't feel like I was living in a pop world uh, I, I, as much as I was feeling like I was living in an underground weirdo world. And that's why I liked it, because I felt like a lot of the bands and a lot of the activity I was involved with was not commercial in the sense that we actually ever believed that what we were doing would be popular. We just wanted it to express uh some of the you know some attitudes which were quite you know uh maverick and interest in bat in in books and attitudes you know i mean when i'll just give you a very you know rough example for example in 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 the mid 1980s a, a lot of most people in britain who listened to pop music wanted to hear verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus middle eight verse chorus end but actually, out of our world, we were into bands like Cabaret Voltaire, you know, who didn't have that kind of formulaic song structure. Yeah. Um, you know, they were often into music. That, uh, uh, main, the mainstream would want music that somehow kind of cheered them up, mate, really, you know. You'd yeah. watch Top of the Pops in 1984, and it was like a kind of office party where every, everyone was kind of at Christmas, where everyone was jumping around and screaming with happiness and um and i didn't feel like the bands in manchester and liverpool necessarily were interested in that no. and um but talk, but top of the pops at that point which i didn't really watch much but obviously being an old man of a certain age you watch bbc4 on a friday night and uh, watching some of those top of the pops i didn't realize how many how much they love balloons balloons were obviously yeah, balloon, balloons balloons were... and screamers and uh it was that kind of yeah, and and I'm not not you know, I mean, I mean you, those top of the pops were kind of snapshot of an era, but I I can remember the 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 scene at that point from I, I, I yeah I just remember us as being outsiders, and some and and some bands were happy. Most bands were happy to be that really. Yes, you know I think if if you start looking at the wider picture. Um, especially in the, again in the northwest of England, uh, we were in a post-industrial era. We were in an era when 
Mrs. Thatcher was the Prime Minister, youth unemployment was high and getting higher. The, 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 the economic policies of the Tory government were not by any means skewed towards saving the manufacturing industry in the northwest of England, far from it. And we had the miners strike, of course, in the 84 and 85. You had the, uh, the Toxtus riots in Liverpool in 1981. Um, so you know, I felt like we were on the edge of musical and economic culture at that point. Yes. Well, and, well, and... John, well, John Peel was a huge kind of, I mean, he was the gatekeeper of, of a huge scene. But a lot of those bands and that he was champion from Big Flame to Bogshed to Stump. I mean, they were definitely, they were, you know, being an outsider wasn't difficult because, because, because you know, even the Smiths were felt, you know, you got really sort of um, hammered for it. And I remember Steve Wright in the afternoon being absolutely affronted by the, the song Hang the DJ, because obviously, and Elvis Costello did Radio Radio as well, which was kind of another sort of go at the sort of the daytime jocks who were sort of, they, they had a lot of balloons in their part, you know, in their offices, obviously, and, and young secretaries. But but the interesting thing was that, that between 83 and 87, there was definitely a feeling that, and which were also the years of the Smiths, there was a bit of a sort of, you know, that jingly jangly sound definitely had a moment before ecstasy sort of arrived on the scene. And also, as you said, the unemployment thing was quite interesting because a lot of bands were unemployed and they had the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance. So you had that one year where you could just, you know, put down that you were a self-employed poet, writer, musician, be in a band and get your, get a single played on John Peel and possibly a John Peel. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, you're, uh, young younger listeners might not know of the enterprise allowance scheme, but it was yeah that was exactly what it was. It was kind of a way of of massaging the unemployment figures by moving a lot of young people onto the enterprise allowance scheme. Where yeah, if you could show that you that you had some kind of interest in being self-employed or you were starting a business, then the government would would pay you uh, and pay your housing benefit. And at the beginning of that, you needed to show that you had a thousand pounds. I know, a thousand pounds. And we have the same the same thousand pounds basically moved from <laughs> bank account to bank account so that e each of us could take a bank a bank statement showing we had a thousand pounds. And once we were on the scene, the thousand pounds would then be um, transferred to who, you know, the drummer of Happy Mondays or somebody who, who would also want then get on the scheme. Yes, and it was a kind. Of, it was. It became a, 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 in a way, a way of subsidising the arts in in the mid nineteen eighties. Yeah. But you know, I think it was what well, you know. The word und, I used the word underground, but the other word that was used a lot at that time was alternative. And I did feel like um, that that scene, um, and you know, to be fair, when Acid House started, similarly, um, it it felt like we were not just interested in alternative music i.e music not like the commercial mainstream but we were actually part of an alternative uh cultural and musical infrastructure and there was a there were networks of record distributors like rough trade there was uh networks of fanzine distributors there was a sense of alternative poetry um alternative music of all kinds and because everybody was living in this you know, in, in the Thatcher world, uh, we were making our own communities. And, um, and I think one of the things that is became harder and is almost impossible now in our world is to live in that world that feels like a complete alternative. Yes. Right. Well, actually, well, it's interesting because there were, I didn't realise this until I suppose doing interviews with people over the last few years, the, there were gatekeepers and obviously mm -hmm. we, we're always going to keep mentioning John Peel, but you know, that getting played on the John Peel, you know, even though I was uh, one of those people who recorded his show most nights on my trusty TDK D, yeah. my TDK uh, D90 cassette and felt yeah. very on my own. I realised there was all these other people also doing the same thing around the whole country in Europe, you know. Would, and so we became these dedicated people who remembered the songs, remembered his little chat between the songs. But we were yeah. we were very committed. So when those alternative club nights happened in all the little towns around the and cities around the country. Yeah you know, on a Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, etc., you'd get 200 people would turn up to see a band they didn't know because you'd heard it on the John Peel show. And also there were normally three bands with 
three pound or something ridiculous and you just go along because you just thought well that'll that'll be a nice thing to see and i've just heard them on the top john pill show and yeah you know so in a way bands were able to then get out to their community which i think is a bit of a tricky one now and play in yeah. front of people who you know weren't their friends and family and anybody else they could emotionally blackmail to see them but complete strangers yeah. so that but i think it was all it's also it, it again it I think to do with access, you know, the, there was a limited access from uh, in, in, in my generation growing up to uh, alternative films like Eraserhead or, or, or music. It was Betty um, Blue, or, really. It was Betty Blue. We loved it. Or Betty Blue. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, and then, or, or let alone kind of things like Clockwork Orange, you know, which, which had been banned in the seventies and which would circulate on VHS cassette only. And and similarly, you know, older music, it was very hard to to, to get hold of, um, you know, good uh, unknown or relatively unknown older music. And so, you know, the, as you say, John Peel was in a way a gatekeeper. What he was doing, I didn't ever feel like he was actually keeping a gate. It was more like he, he was a kind of uh, a, a sharer of passions, you know. And, yeah. um, and I think, I mean, I... I what you say is right, because I also, but I also remember the NME as being very important. I can remember um, picking up a copy of the NME, and again, that was another way into that alternative world. And I would read it from cover to cover, and I would take it as you did, listen to the John Peel show. I take the NME very seriously, and if one of my favourite journalists, like Ian Penman or Paul Morley, reviewed a single. Um, and gave it a good review and made it sound interesting. I would buy that record. Yeah. And and this was an era where you wouldn't <laughs> be able to hear it first. So it's yeah. not like we could go on YouTube and think, is it as good as Paul Morley says it is? I trusted him, and I would go to the record shop and I would buy that record. So there was the that that was how uh, music and ideas was being disseminated in the underground and the alternative world that I'm talking about. Yes. Well, I think the NME had some amazing circulation that I'm guessing a bit, but I think, did someone say 100,000 a week? It did hit 100,000 at that point, yeah. I know, which was kind of like, so the importance of the NME and, and we being sort of of a certain, um, yeah, we, 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 we wouldn't throw them away. We would store them in the attic for decades yeah. on and move house with them, which was often quite hard work. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there would be, it would also be a source of information because there would be the gig guide, you know, there'd be the gig guide in the NME. And, and, and that, again, that was at a time uh, when the enemy would also write about films and would write a little bit about books, um, you know, and, uh, and culture and politics. And, and, you know, we haven't talked about Rock Against Racism, for example, which, you know, is a little bit earlier than the period we're talking about. But, you know, that, it, there was a sense of um, things being possible and avenues to explore in those scenes. And I think that was very, very important to me. Yes. Well, I think that was also warming up because you mentioned the miners and after the Falklands, but there was also Red Wedge, which was kind of, we were very passionate because at that time, the desperation yeah. to change the government was with the young yeah. people anyway. So Red Wedge came along and that was also another kind of, yeah, we were all a bit confused because Martin Kent was also part of it, which just seemed a bit strange, but um, it was a fine junior. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, Billy Bragg and Paul Weller. But uh, yeah, so look, then, slightly get, staying with that decade, uh, that year, you, you sort of, you, this book, is it a good time to mention the, the book that's just come out, Searching for Love? Because it seems very strange that someone from America he was very kind of obviously just a young person came to Liverpool to um, find the scene. So, so when did you decide to do to um, publish or, or start writing about this? Yeah, it, I mean, it is what you're saying is is strange in some ways. You know that Courtney Love and her her, her friend, her girlfriend Robin, came to to first to Dublin and then to uh, London and, and then on to Liverpool. Stayed in Liverpool for five months in 1982. I mean, young people did travel around a little bit, but for them, it was a sense of a musical pilgrimage, especially the the, the part of the trip w that was to Liverpool. Um, you know, and and it, I, but I think that was quite rare. Um, that that particular reason for travelling somewhere. I remember 
being um, meeting two lads from Holland in about 1985 who'd come to Manchester because they liked the fall. And that was the only reason. And they wanted to walk the streets that Marky Smith walked on. And, um, and, and, and in fact, go and have a drink in the pubs, etc. that Mark would drink in. Um, but the idea of kind of uh, it, the people from what might have, for all intents and purposes, from another world, wanted to come into your city and, and as tourists and uh, be interested in what you're interested in was actually quite mind-blowing. It's kind of less so now because um, obviously there's much more international travel and globalisation, etc. But the idea that... Um, Courtney Love, age 17, should turn up in Liverpool in the early, early 1982. Is, I mean, one, one of the things is that she actually was uh, already interested in rock and roll, rock music. She had discovered the NME. I mean, she's talked a little bit about her stay in Liverpool um, in interviews and in her, in her kind of scrapbook that was... Um, called Dirty Blonde, um, and, you know, she, yeah, she knew about the bands. She she ended up there because she was a fan of Teardrop Explodes, and she'd gone backstage and met the band uh, to, on a couple, uh, a couple of gigs um, and, and been invited by Julian Cope, the singer, to uh, go up, to, if she wanted to go to Liverpool, he had just vacated a, a bedroom in a shared house and he said that she was welcome to stay there, take up residence there. And that's where she went with her friend Robin. Um, and because her, the facilitator to the visit was um, Julian Cope and because she was already interested in music and had, and had begun to read the NME, when she got into to Liverpool, she immersed herself almost immediately in the scene, you know, uh, as it stood then, which, as I say, was quite, an, you know, was, was on the cusp of being uh, well-known, but actually was also, in a way, quite underground. You know, the people she met in Liverpool in that era, uh, Paul Simpson from the Wild Swans, uh, Pete Burns, who was about to become a member of Dead or Alive, um, and various members of Teardrop Explodes. Though those people were living a pretty hand-to-mouth existence in Liverpool, you know, they, they they might be on the NME front cover occasionally, but you know, they were they were just walking the streets like everyone else. So they were approachable, and um, and and that was the world that Courtney lived in for five months, going to parties with them, um, hanging out at Probe Records, which. Uh, you know, record shops in that era were, were another uh, another way you could access good music um, and and hanging out in the cafe bar that they all hung out in called the Armadillo Tea Rooms, another one called Cafe Tabac. So, yeah, so what interested me, I mean, as I said at the beginning, you know, I, I liked going over to Liverpool in that era. I admired the mu musicians. I understood the culture. I loved all those little places myself. So I'd always wanted to write about that and document that. But then the idea that 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 Courtney Love collided with that world just seemed, uh, in in at, at first glance, quite bizarre. But then you know more and more interesting, and so I so I was able to write a book about her coming to Liverpool, which enabled me to write about that scene, but also to write about her, and because I knew that she later in retrospect, said those five months were very important to her. I mean, the most important part of her musical education. Um, she talks about life before and after Liverpool. I wanted to find out what it was in Liverpool and, and who in Liverpool had inspired her. What, what, what was it that she found when she got there? What did she learn while she was there? Who did she meet? Um, and it enabled me to, so that's what I researched and that's what I wrote about. Yes. So did you interview all the people that she had stayed with and sort of got their story and, and to sort of find out? Because obviously with that five months, it must have been vaguely 
straightforward to sort of go right she stayed here and stayed with these people and then she stayed there and met those people and I just wonder do did people remember her you know I mean well I start I started out um well first of all do people remember her uh, they do uh I mean they um there's not many men especially who were around in Liverpool on the music scene uh, in that era, in their late 20s, who doesn't have a Courtney Love story. They all have Courtney Love stories. They all claim they can remember her and her friend. Um, and they and there are various encounters which have become, for them, you know, the stuff of myth and legend. Uh, Bill Drummond talks about uh, um, how Courtney had LSD all the time. Pete Burns, before he died, talked about her... Um, being at his record shop and bothering him in the street. Um, Pete Wiley talks about an encounter with her at Cafe Tobacco. They, they all remember her, partly because, obviously, um, she subsequently became hugely famous. And so, in retrospect, they kind of might have had a very, very vague memory of uh, these two American girls. But once she'd become famous they obviously then began to put two and two together they also remembered her because the one thing that that they all remembered about her was that she was very loud and a little bit attention seeking so uh, that also jogged their memory um and uh i think thirdly because um they felt um it, it i'm not saying any of them uh made up their memories but uh, one of the things right in the book that intrigued me was how memory works. And I had access to Courtney's memories via interviews and, as I say, her uh, a biography that was written of her and also Dirty Blonde, her scrapbook. Um, I also interviewed her friend who lives back in America in Portland, Oregon. And, um, and then I, I interviewed the... the various people in Liverpool. And I began to wonder in some ways how accurate these memories were. Um, and being a kind of quite a nerdy cultural historian, used to building a timeline for subjects and pinning down every detail. And as you say, where did they live? Who did they meet? On what date? What bands did they go and see? Um, and finding out what you might call the truth um, through these details was always something that I thought I would do. But halfway through the research, I, I, I didn't don't say I gave up on that, but I began to think that it, the truth was going to be a bit more of a more slippery creature to grab hold of. Um, and so I began to just go with the story. And, you know, after all, it's nearly 40 years ago. Yes. Um, and the stories as told by Courtney and as told by people in Liverpool were just so interesting and some of them so outlandish. I thought, I'm just going to go with it. So I'm not going to get too concerned with the particulars and too concerned with the forensic examination of her visit. And I just wanted to kind of, I think, capture a sense of what she was like and capture a sense of the spirit of the city in the book. Right, yes. So you weren't sort of trying to sort of like, you know, this is the the day she arrived, this is the day she left, and, and on this day she would have... Because a diary would have been just so much more straightforward, wouldn't it? Whereas you've sort of gone more creative, I guess. Yeah, more creative, but also I think it, ref it reflect reflected a little bit more of how... Um, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of rock stars are quite into self-mythology. You know, the, the story as told by Courtney that she was uh, she was an, had an inkling that rock and roll was going to be the way she was going to express all the chaos inside her head because she had an incredibly disadvantaged and, yeah, chaotic childhood, which I didn't quite realise until I began to research the book that the vehicle through which she was going to express all this was rock and roll. And uh, and to arrive in Liverpool, which even if you're not if you're not aware of Eric's Club and Echo and the Bunnymen, you still think of as a music city because of the Beatles. Um, 
that she'd arrived there and had some kind of transform transformative experience, which she'd then gone on to use in her career. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and the stories of, oh, this is what happened when I met Ian McCulloch, and this is what happened when I met um, Julian Cope. Uh, uh, rock stars do set, tend to self-mythologize, um, and uh, because it's part of their, uh, they they understand that in order to seem authentic, they have to be have a backstory which is somehow compelling, and the authenticity of it is you know writ large. That's what they want, you know. Yes. And uh, so there was a sense of Courtney being a self mythologizer, but then I realised that actually everybody is to some extent into adjusting and editing their memory in order to understand who they are. That all of us have billions of memories, obviously, of years gone by. We have to filter that, we have to edit that, and more importantly, we have to put it in a structure which makes sense of our lives. You know, so when you say to when when you say to somebody, oh, you know, um, so how did you end up here? As you did to me, you know, how did you end up? writing up this book you know i begin with the story of you know going over to liverpool in 1980 and starting a fanzine and putting on bands it's a kind of compelling narrative um and it does explain you know where i am now but i've had to you know in that process of course i've i've edited and and i've uh, i've created that narrative it all kind of seems to make sense so the idea that that the, the the memories I'm gathering are compelling, but probably flawed. I think gave gives the gives the book in a way a lot more life and reflects life. And, yes. Um, so that's why I kind of gave up on the what you might call you know cutting the lawn and and pruning the hedge idea of history, where everything has to be neat and tidy and explainable because uh, I'm not sure that life is so why should this book be and yeah. that was my that was my approach and um it's funny because I can remember sort of going through quite a hippie phase and there was that whole thing with it. Jesus came to Glastonbury wasn't there as well there's kind of these kind of myths and I suppose I was thinking when you were talking about Courtney coming to Liverpool though you know on this uh, I don't know yeah I mean there was I, I wrote uh, the book I wrote uh one of the books I've written Previously, is a book called Life After Dark, with it, which is a history of nightclubs and music venues in Britain, and it goes back two hundred years. And there, there is uh, one chapter where I took talk about the myths surrounding certain venues, and there are four or five venues that claim that when Jimi Hendrix played on their stage uh, during his guitar antics, he knocked a hole in the ceiling of the venue above the stage and I just don't think that he did that four or five times while playing in Britain. There's another uh, myth around clubs which is about the Cray Twins, the gangsters from East London, coming to various cities outside of London and trying to take over the clubs and, and all of various protection rackets involving nightlife. and cities including Newcastle, Birmingham and Manchester all have a story that the Cray twins arrived by train, in all the stories they arrived by train, arrived by train to take over the protection rackets involved in nightlife in that city in the 1960s and in all the stories the local gangsters chase them out of town and again I don't think that the Cray twins had the time or the inclination to jump on trains and go around the country trying to take over the running of protection rackets in nightclubs all over the country. I just don't think it happened. But the mythology has become so embedded in those cities that in the end, I thought I'll document them all. And I think the reader will probably come to the same conclusion as me. So the the idea that history and our lives and how we and it's always to do with creating identity those those cities want to tell a story of how 
there so hard the Cray twins couldn't get into their world. That's the story, that's the identity, especially the north of England. We're too hard for the Cray twins. Yes. So the, the myth the myth the myths that we tell ourselves as cities and as people are usually there to give us a kind of uh, give us an identity, tell us, tell, uh, tell the world what we are about. Yes, absolutely. And when you when you finished the book and then you sort of had it printed, I mean, I just wondered two things. Did you, do you send a copy to Courtney and say, look, you know, just just for your curiosity and interest, you might be interested, you know, you might want to copy and flick through it. And and I just wondered also, do other pe- have other people contacted you from the Liverpool scene and said, oh, wait a minute, there's you've you've missed a few bits here. Um, how come you didn't interview me? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one the book is part of a, a series of um, small format limited edition books that I'm doing. Um, they're they're ten thousand words or so, which you know is is about one tenth of what you might call a proper book. Um, and uh, I'm doing a series of eight of them, and this is book number um, three. So the Courtney Love one. So. Um, I knew that there was going to be a lot of stuff I couldn't include. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't have the luxury of three years of research and, you know, a large format. Um, so, you know, as I said, I wanted to kind of capture a snapshot on, and capture the spirit of the times. So um, I was ready for more stories to be told to me after publication. And that's exactly what's happened. And some of it actually was is great stuff. And there's a part of me that wishes I had spent three years writing a, a much more extended work because it is a fascinating subject. Um, but the small format works for me and I think works for a lot of other people. Um, in fact, when I launched the book in Liverpool at the British Music Experience, someone actually came to the, well, a number of people in the book came to the event and someone I didn't know came to the event and she had with her a bag full of letters and photographs, uh, letters sent by Courtney to her after Courtney had gone home and uh, photographs taken of her, Courtney and the friends that they hung out with in Liverpool. It was like a gold mine, you know? Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff still out there. In terms of talking to, to Courtney... Um, I talked to Courtney uh, a couple of months before the book came out because I didn't want her to kind of hear through a third party um, and panic or uh, or whatever she might do about somebody writing a book like this that she had no editorial control over. But um, so I, I contacted her and she was very interested and sent me actually... Um, a number of emails, some of which were about her stay in Liverpool. <clears throat> and she told me how romantic she found the city, which I think is um, an incredible word to use about a rundown post-industrial city where unemployment was rising one year after the Toxteth riots and the same year as Boys of the Black Stuff. To find that romantic was a very interesting word, but I loved it because it it was for her clearly um, an adventure. It was somewhere quite mystical. It was somewhere where she found some kind of utopia, you know, and and the darkness of the buildings and the streets and the the you know the and, and, as one of the people said in in the book, actually one of the people I was interviewing said, Courtney looked at us ragamuffins and knew we had something she wanted. And um, so my my conversation with Courtney about the book, are in fact, ongoing. So um, it's kind of opened up an interesting little chapter in my life, to be honest. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because obviously what's been quite interesting sort of on that scene has been things like Cherry Red Records have been putting these compilations out and going around, you know, doing ones on different cities. And they did one on Manchester, which had from that sort of period, you know, yeah. um, which was seven CDs and the one on Liverpool was five CDs and um, still a lot. And what 
it's boggling. It's just the amount of creativity that was happening in one city. I mean, obviously, it's a big city, but, you know, it's still like, well, that's quite a legacy and that's quite a body of work that, you know, two northern places did. I mean, it's not, and obviously, you know, Cherry Red are very good at these compilations, so they're doing one on, or done one on Sheffield, and they're probably going to do lots more. So it is it is interesting when, when people compile things like this and then sort of document it, just to realise how rich that time was. And um, it wasn't just people like Michael Heseltine and Margaret Thatcher sort of looking at Liverpool in a slightly, well, we'll just give up with Liverpool and just let it go to the dogs. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you have to, you have to kind of hold up your hand and and congratulate those cities in a, in a way for their resourcefulness, you know. Uh, but you know, I, I I have always wondered since that era whether, uh, again, un, you know, uh, taking up Courtney's word, I don't want to romantic romanticize it, but um, I think artistic expression is something that people who live under difficult circumstances have found very important to them i think you can be an artist without suffering you can be uh, a creative city without suffering but at the same time you look at that era and you look at the lives of lots of artists and 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 writers and you realize that often great creativity comes out of difficult circumstances because people are in those circumstances are are already living an intense life it might be an intense life full of negativity but it's an intense life and a need to express that uh, somehow and um and and with stuff in their heads and if they're not close to the levers of economic economic and political power you know if they feel like they can't change their situation economically or politically then at least culturally and through creativity they can talk about what is inside their heads and what their communities are going through um or not even that they could escape you know i mean in a way echo and the bunny men that even the sound of that band is is the sound of escape in a lot of ways so uh you know it's a there's a kind of psychedelic Thing. There's, a, there's the imagery that they use, you know, even in things like the Killing Moon, and so um, that the fact that those cities created that music, I think, is still fascinates me, and I, and and I do see it as being an incredibly creative period. But as I say, the thing which I, I, the other thing I remember is just how uninterested most of the population of those cities were in that activity. It was marginal. It was weird. It was not given an arts council grant. It was not empowered by the local city council. It was literally kids getting together in a room and saying, let's do something. No one's doing anything for us. Let's create our own culture. And that is that alone is a valuable thing, even if the culture you create doesn't end up being some of the best music in the world. But when it becomes some of the best music in the world, then we just have to celebrate it. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting what you said earlier about people visiting the place because of a music scene. Because obviously, especially Manchester and the Hacienda, I just remember people wanting to go to Manchester Uni because of, in the 90s, especially because of the club scene. And you thought, God, that's, that." you know, the marketing department for the university sort of... Um, whether they, they realised that at the time, they probably didn't because they're often quite slow moving, but you realise that's what the kids were looking for, you know, more than anything was like, well, does it have a good nightlife? Does it have a good culture? Does it have good music? Does it have, you know, these basic, very basic things and that kind of can transform a city like Manchester and Liverpool within a... Yeah, they did, they did end up, I mean, obviously with Liverpool after uh, the, the era we're talking about, um uh in the mid mid and late 1980s was uh 90s sorry was home to cream which was a huge nightclub you know and with a huge profile very very influential and um and that's cream certainly brought tourists and students into the city and as you say the hacienda and the music scene in manchester did as well um and you know there is there is a to me i still um 
sometimes I have to admit I do cringe at the way that that history of created by marginal and you know uh, pissed off people in the uh, in in those cities then becomes uh, something yeah that is is marketed as being one of the great things about the city. I mean, the moment when Metrolink, which is the tram system in um, Manchester, which has expanded a lot over the last 15 years, uh, they had a, and every time it expands and opens a new, a new line somewhere, uh, obviously a lot of adverts are created extolling the virtues of Metrolink. And a couple of years ago, um, the advert posters read, Love will tear us apart, but Metrolink will bring us together. And I did kind of slightly shudder at the way that that song and the world that I remember in the late 70s and the early 80s had become appropriated as a way for a commercial organisation to sell us their product. And in some ways, it's amazing that all that music has, you know, become, I mentioned Killing Moon before, all that music has become so iconic. Yes. Um, in another way, it does It does take it into parts of life and the world that you would kind of never have imagined back then. But, but interestingly, the people with the financial clout for various reasons, sometimes, you know, to do with inheritance, sometimes because of being in careers, you know, they're, they're sort of there looking at their childhood memories and, and bizarrely, you know, we're just listening to those kind of records by people like Joy Division or the Smiths or Echo and the Bunnymen or the Wild Swans and thinking, yeah. oh, I've got a good idea. And, and that generation now are the ones who, you know, have the, have more wealth than probably the younger generation. So it's kind of interesting that things get slightly turned around. Yeah, they do. They do. Yes. Unlike, you know, putting something like, I want to hold your hand, you know, which probably think, I don't know what they're talking about. But Love Will Tear Us Apart is probably a bit more sort of relevant, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that that history, and then again, the history that I was more, the era that I was more involved with at the end of the, the middle and the end of the 80s with the Hacienda. I mean, it has become, as I always say, the Hacienda is more famous now than it was when it was open. Um, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to see Joy Division three times. I saw, uh, ended up actually seeing what turned out to be their final gig, May 1980. And um, uh, obviously Joy Division are far, far better known now than they were then. I mean, they were a pretty much of a, outside of Manchester, certainly, where they could probably get audiences, I would have thought, of five or 600. You know, which still, when you think of the kind of audiences that bands like Kasabian and Kaiser Chiefs get, that we also think of as indie, um, you know, they fill arenas, whereas a big band from that world back then, you know, could could uh, barely fill a function room in a pub in some places. Um, you know, and, um, and, and I think it's important to remember that because I think culture does begin in those small places. It does begin with people just deciding that they're going to do something with their lives and and do something that other people aren't doing and and just crack on and do it. And, um, you know, uh, great cultural activity doesn't start with, uh, you know, someone grabbing a, uh, you know, a grant from the Arts Council and, and setting up a focus group and a marketing department and a, you know, having a digital media strategy. It actually just starts with a few people in a room with some ideas, just collaborating and making something happen. Yes. There's a lot of forms to fill in with those grants. But just lastly, lastly what would you say to a, an 18-year-old self? Because obviously you've, you've kind of trod in quite a interesting path sort of do, doing lots of different things which you know you haven't been in a band but you've done books you've done dj and you've sort of been around the scene i just wondered what you learned over these decades that you'd have thought oh yes that would that would have been a really good thing to have been told or to have been aware of when i'd started this journey i think the only thing i would have i would now go back and tell the 18 year old me is by all means make the same mistakes because there are mistakes obviously along the along the way but just photograph 
and video a few more things because um, a lot, so much is undocumented. I mean, you talk about the, you know, the cherry red, whatever, seven CDs or box sets of this, but film footage of some of the things that I was lucky enough to be a part of or to witness would just be of so much cultural interest right now. Um, but we didn't, we were on such a journey and such an exciting ride. We didn't really think let's, let's document it. We didn't think anyone was that particularly that interested. Um, so I kind of wished that I had more visual memory. And I, and I think now, you know, when we, when we used to, uh, you know, everyone photographing and filming stuff, it does actually make you realize how, how great a way it is to document. Um, and uh, so I think I would have just said to the 18 year old me, invest in a video recorder yes. and, um, uh, and a decent camera. And uh, because what you are going to experience, believe it or not, other people will be interested in, in 40 years time. And, well, uh, yes, I know. I just um, did an interview with uh, Kevin Cummins about the Sex Pistols, yeah. and you know, you thought, "Wow, you, you know, Christmas Day." You know, your parents must have thought, "What the hell are you doing that for?" But you know, he took lots of film, and you know, and no one was interested for decades. And now you think, "Thank God you did that." <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You know? um, but at the time, you know, you, you know, as he said. You know, you sold a few of those pictures, but not many people were that interested for a long time. But now you just think, oh, yes, please. And I think the thing was, again, it goes back to access. You know, I mean, I, I hadn't, um, in 1985, I hadn't seen any film footage of the Velvet Underground or the Stooges, um, you know, or a whole load of, you know, or, or mods, you know, mod clubs from the early 60s. I hadn't all the things that I'm now interested in and that I've, I've now seen footage of thanks to YouTube and, and other platforms um, in 1983, four five, I hadn't. So I hadn't real, even realized the potency of the video image. Um, and, and so, you know, I wasn't therefore I wasn't inclined to uh, persuade myself or anyone else to video what we were doing. It was just not really how our brains worked. Um, but, you know, we live, we are now living in, yeah, a world when, when uh, uh, visual memory is, is, is prized probably above all others, you know, yes. in, in a lot of ways. Indeed, wise words. Anyway, that is the end of my conversation with Dave Haslam. Thank you for listening. If you, yes, want to know any more details about the book, it's come out titled Searching for Love, Courtney Love in Liverpool, 1982. Available from all good bookshops and also online. Check it out. Anyway, this has been me, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show, I will be there. And also I've been um, archiving and podcasting all these shows. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And that is it. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week.